At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I'm Laura Youngkin of The Brave Millennial. This is Lars Helgeson, CEO of GreenRope and author of CRM for Dummies. I'm Allison Bloom-Festock, the founder and CEO of Know Your Crew. This is Brad Van Dam, president and CEO of Marge Confectionery. And you're listening to High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. All right, to everyone listening out there, I got to ask you a question. If you knew that a home decor or furnishing purchase would ultimately help families caring for sick children. Would you want to know more? Well, my friends at thetrendyspace.com are doing just that. They call it Warming Hearts by Warming Homes. And they're asking for us to swing over into their website, browse for some trendy home decor, check out, and in doing so, support families caring for sick children. See, the Trendy Space is committed to donating a portion of proceeds towards helping less fortunate families. You'll find hundreds of beautiful, trendy home decor and furnishing items at the Trendy Space site. But what makes them different is they believe no home decor could ever truly warm a home enough when there's a sick child in the family. So please, check them out today. I want you to use the promo code WISDOM. That's right, promo code WISDOM at checkout and get 15% off your entire order just for being my appreciated listener. Go to thetrendyspace.com right Hey, are you looking to advertise? Like, are you really looking to expand on the reach that you have? Well, look no further than right here. Yes, right where you're listening to right now, right here on High Level Wisdom. If you have a great business or product that you feel would serve a growing audience and also the executives that come on this show every single week, feel free to send us an email. Info at highlevelwisdom.com. That's info at highlevelwisdom.com. Once again, that's info at highlevelwisdom.com to put your product or service right here. At dollarseed.com, all of our seeds are only a dollar a pack. And we have online resources that teach you all about the rewarding hobby of growing your own plants, flowers, herbs, and vegetables. Imagine the joy you'll feel when your children actually help you harvest your first garden crop. Or the pride of knowing you'll never need a florist again. 
visit dollarseed.com and grow a little magic of your own for just a dollar. dollarseed.com. What could be healthier? When is the last time you've actually watched a movie and went and read a book that was written about the lessons in a movie? Well, I want to introduce you to a book that is written by Jack Cogra. This book is called 26 Life and Business Lessons from the Black Panther Movie. Yes, as a reader, here's what you're going to learn. Maintaining focus, time management, loyalty, impact of our actions, importance of embracing diversity, and the effect of oppressive forces. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to take a moment, go to Amazon and look up 26 Life and Business Lessons from the Black Panther Movie by author Jack Cogra. It's that time of year again. You need to file your taxes. For many people, the word taxes brings on an instant headache. What's deductible? What's not? What's changed for the current year? The tax code is thousands of pages long. Who has time to figure it all out? Thankfully, Get Help Tax and Bookkeeping has a solution for you. Simply complete a brief questionnaire online, and one of our IRS-authorized tax professionals will prepare and file your return. It's fast and easy. Call 914-467-9271 to get started. If you need help, get help. Now, let's listen to this week's episode. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for listening. Today's episode is a really, really great episode where you're going to get an opportunity to listen to um, somebody who I consider uh, a friend of all millennials, um, his personality, his character, uh, the way he leads is literally from behind the team. And, and I think you're going to understand um, a lot of that as you get into this interview. I had the pleasure of interviewing the CEO and the brainchild behind a company called Menlo Inc. Now, if you have not heard of them, trust me, by the end of this interview, I know I say that all the time, but I promise you really do. You get a chance to learn more about people. And none other today is another great guy, Richard Sheridan. Now, he has been around for quite a while. He has a ton of experience, um, but more importantly, he still has a heart for people. And so I want you guys to sit back, listen to my interview with Richard Sheridan. It's an exclusive right here on High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. Take a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in today. This is Chris Williams. You know the show. You know how every single episode we try to bring you somebody with not only just experience, but somebody who can give you perspective. Um, I, my, my guest today, I, I have to say, um, if, if millennials were to carve out um, their best friend who was a baby boomer. I think we have him today and I think he's made the show and I think he's somebody that um, not only millennials would love to have as a, as a best friend, but I think at the same time, um, it works in both ways. And so you'll learn all about the, the, the storyteller, the CEO, the man, the myth, the legend who is Richard Sheridan. Now, if you do not know who he is, I promise you by the time we're done with this interview, uh, you will know all about him, but more importantly, you will learn about the wonderful company that he has built, Menlo Innovations. Now, most people don't know what a company like Menlo would do for another company. Um, we're going to talk about why it even exists. We're going to learn about the importance of this company, but more importantly, um, how he's able to help large corporations and organizations near and far be able to create the type of cultures and disrupt patterns of behavior within organizations. 
Um, a lot of people would look at Menlo and go, yeah, that's kind of a, a smaller company, but I'm going to get into his brain and we're going to start asking real questions and talking about how does this work and how do you scale this for companies who are larger than a few hundred to a few thousand to a few hundred thousand people in larger companies that span the entire globe? How do you begin to create the type of culture that you really want if you're the executive? Well, Richard's going to tell us about that and more. And so I want to present to some and introduce to others a good friend of mine who I've gotten to learn by just not only his books, but I've gotten a chance to meet him uh, as of late as well, Richard Sheridan. Richard, how are you? And thank you for coming to the show today. Great to be with you, Chris. I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Awesome. Good deal. Good deal. Well, listen, um, I'm really excited to dive into this today. And so I'm just going to, you know, turn it over to you and let's just start really in the beginning. I want to kind of start from um, before Menlo was even born, before this idea even came. I really want to kind of dive into what who was Richard before the CEO thing, before the storyteller what was your version of, of life like? And and help our audience understand, um, you know, your journey, you know, prior to what Menlo is today and even before you even opened the first doors and stuck a sign up and said, we're Menlo. I uh, would really love to just unpack that for a second. Sure. Um, yeah, so I was born here in Michigan. I, I'm a pure Michigan kid, as we like to say here. Uh, and grew up just north of Detroit. Fell in love with technology when I was just a kid back in 1971. I know kids today probably are amazed that there were in fact computers back in those days. They were a little, <laughs> they were a little different than they are today, but uh, as a freshman in high school, I started programming. Uh, it was the first year that my high school offered computer programming, and I just fell in love instantly. I, this is what I wanted to do with my life. It was exciting. It was something I knew how to do, and, and quite frankly, it was a bit of a heady experience because I could now do something my parents didn't even know what it was, right? Wow. You know, so I kind of set myself apart from, uh, from a generation there, uh, as, as many of us did in those days. And by... 10th grade, I had won an international programming contest for what would now be termed fantasy baseball. Uh, my favorite hometown team, Detroit Tigers, had just won the World Series a few years before. And wow. so I, I typed the entire baseball register into the computer so my friends and I could pick our lineups and play them against each other. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so really what you're saying is, uh, Richard, we have you to thank for fantasy baseball? <laughs> I, you know, it's a good question. I don't know if I inspired someone else to create fantasy baseball, uh, but uh, as you will probably learn, my life may be filled with these kind of lost opportunities. <laughs> but uh, for me, uh, I love, you know, in, in terms of like digging into me personally, uh, I love to create things, mm -hmm. whether, you know, with tools and wood and hammers and saws or with software that creator type of thing inside of me, a maker as they call it now, was was evident even back then. Uh, that contest win landed me a job as a programmer before I could even drive a car. Wow. So 1973, I'm working as a programmer uh, for what was called the Macomb Intermediate School District and uh, started building an email system for them, uh, first one they would have ever seen. 
And, uh, and my career was launched even while I was still in high school. Uh, I eventually went up to the University of Michigan, got a couple of degrees in computer science and computer engineering, and thought, you know what, I got the world by the tail. Mm -hmm. I'm in an industry uh, that's going to explode. Uh, I, I love what I do. I'm pretty darn good at it. Um, and yet, quickly after graduating from college, I started falling down into a trough of disillusionment about the career I'd chosen. Mm -hmm. And what was weird was I'm getting promotions and raises and greater stock options and, you know, all the things the world measures as success, I absolutely had. And yet here, my heart was breaking for the profession I was in because I just knew there was a better way to do things. We were failing uh, on every dimension that I wanted to succeed at. Uh, and we'll probably get into sort of this purpose-driven element of Menlo, but I will tell you, it was it was born in these moments where um, I realized that um, uh, what I really wanted to do wasn't just do technical things. I wanted to delight others. I wanted to please people with the work that I was doing, and that was going to involve doing quality work, delivering great experiences for the people who are going to use what I was touching. Uh, leading groups of people to work together to produce these uh, complex things we were working on. And it just felt to me personally like failure in every dimension. Now, I think I was outperforming most of my peers. So it, it was a little bit of like I could have just shrugged my shoulders and say, you know, this is how it is. I just refused to do that. Mm. So, so let's I want to I want to talk about that for a second. You, you mentioned being in a position where you're performing at an exceptional level, but yet you felt like there was more and you internalized it almost as there was something more than the success that you were doing and that you were ultimately obviously creating for someone else, but there was a deeper piece. Can, can you talk a little bit more about what did that feel like to be successful, quote unquote, but at the same time, knowing there was more, that had to be a, a difficult uh, gray space for somebody who was successful at that time. Yeah, no question. You know, I, I was I was well trained. Uh, getting degrees in computer science from the University of Michigan is uh, is a ticket uh, that you can kind of cash in wherever you want to go. Uh, people expected great things from me. I expected great things from myself, and yet. Uh, I personally was falling short of my own expectations. Uh, the way it manifests itself in the work world, and I'm guessing a lot of your listeners will be able to relate to what I'm about to describe, is work felt like chaos. Wow. Every day, come in and phones would be ringing off the hook with trouble, and I'd be going to meetings where we're trying to like sort through all the problems the software we were creating had, and there were deadlines that were getting blown past, and everybody's getting upset about it, and uh, and I felt, you know, disillusioned is the best word I can use for it, but I knew there was a better way of doing things. I, I just had to find it. Uh, there was no obvious answer. It wasn't like... I was forgetting to do something that everybody else was doing. I looked around our whole industry and realized, no, this is a problem for everybody. You know, and, and you may remember, you know, in the earliest days of using Microsoft products, the blue screen of death. Yeah. 
you're, you're working on your computer and suddenly it just freezes up and you lose all your work. Right. That was kind of indicative of our entire industry. I mean, if Microsoft, with all of its riches, couldn't produce great software, what expectation could I personally have in a much smaller organization that I could produce great software? So I just looked into this sort of catastrophe that was my developing industry and said, no, there's got to be a better way of doing things. And quite frankly, for me, um, I, I needed that personally. Uh, and if I couldn't find it, I don't think I could have survived the industry. And so I would come home after very long days because the, the software industry is one of death march culture. Mm -hmm. So famous for 24-7 and programmers bringing sleeping bags into work right. and dealing with all these problems. <clears throat> and I would come home and my wife would look at me and after she told me my cold dinner was in the microwave waiting to be heated up, right? Because I'd missed another family meal. Wow. And she'd say, Honey, you look really tired. Did you get a lot done today? Mm. And I realized, no, I'd gotten nothing done today. I, I worked hard. It was adrenaline filled. I mean, it, firefighters, you know, firefighting is actually a pretty exciting profession, right? Right. Uh, uh, but when you aren't actually paid to, you know, put out fires, you're paid to do something else. Uh, and in fact, most of the processes we were using were actually setting those fires. You felt like an arsonist, not a firefighter. Wow. And so all of those things were just steaming up in my brain and saying, you know, there's, you've got to find a way out of this. You just have to find a way out of this. And so, uh, so I began a journey. And my journey led me to authors and books, but the books were not on technology. They were on how to organize human teams more effectively. Wow. So one thing that I thought was pretty interesting that you were just talking about is this idea behind um, creating some of these problems that you guys were trying to now go fix, right? Um, and it became, you know, probably, you know, fires every day that you're trying to put out. You put out one over here and then all of a sudden more blow up. Some people would say that's how some companies and, you know, organizations stay in business, right? That they become uh, the dependency uh, of other, you know, companies or third parties. Did you notice that? Did, did you notice how that was impacting the culture? What? What was kind of going on while you were trying to figure out your own, you know, it, you know, issue with what was happening? Did you notice that, you know, organizations or some people actually liked the fact that there was always chaos going on? Oh, I think there's some managers and leaders and, and even workers who thrive in that environment it, because, quite frankly, I mean, there's there's uh, there's satisfaction in being busy all day. Regardless of what's creating the busyness, I just wanted something higher order. I wanted to produce something for the world that I could be proud of. And, and I wanted people to take delight in what my either my own hands were creating or the, the work of the teams that I was leading. And so chaos at a certain point, uh, while exhilarating, just wasn't enough for me. Yeah, so let's... let's talk about this for a second i, I want to so now you've you've gotten pat you you've you become aware of this moment right you've seen this moment you know you're in it <laughs> and probably everything around you is starting to really suck 
right? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 I think obviously, you know, as a family person, you know, you you get home and you're starting to realize not only is is just work starting to suck, but that suck is starting to bleed into my personal life, right? What I guess when you when you were aware of this environment. And when you looked across the landscape of not only your skill set, what you were bringing to the table and what you were able to do, what was the spark that 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 told you, why don't I go out and try to either solve these issues or create a company that I would even want to work in? Yeah, I, you know, I started reading these books that had greatly influenced me. Tom Peters' book, In Search of Excellence, Peter Drucker's books on management, uh, uh, Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline on the Art and Practice of Building a Learning Organization. And by reading these books, what I was, um, what I was seeing is that these pretty uh, thoughtful authors were describing that, in fact, there is a city on the hill that you can get to. Uh, some have actually done it. They didn't tell me how to get there, but at least I was inspired with hope that I could get there. And there were, there were a couple of sort of click moments for me, uh, you know, that, that, that catalytic moment where suddenly, boom, I know what I'm going to go do. And, and it, the first of those was uh, inspired by a book by a fellow programmer named Kent Beck. And Kent Beck, in about 1999, wrote a book called Extreme Programming Explained. Okay. That's an odd title um, and kind of a, a strange uh, name for a new way of doing things. But I was so taken with what he had written in that book. And it was clear that Kent was as frustrated as I was, mm -hmm. but he was able to articulate in a pretty short book some possible ideas that were intriguing and counterintuitive. And I think my mind had been prepared for that kind of moment. And then I saw a video that Nightline, Ted Koppel, back in those days, did on a company called IDEO uh, yes. out in Alto. And uh, they watched them redesign the shopping cart in just five days and uh, filmed it and, and did this wonderful 30-minute synopsis of that. And quite frankly, me reading that book and seeing that video produced that aha moment. Hmm. And, uh, and I went to my boss at the time. Now, at this point, I've already progressed up to VP, vice president of R&D. Wow. Of company here in Ann Arbor. And um, it's called Interface Systems. And, uh, and quite frankly, I didn't want to be the VP I, because that just meant I was signing up for more burdens, more. <laughs> and, uh, and yet here I was. And, uh, and I went to my boss and I went to the, my peers, the other VPs, and I said, guys, this is what I'm thinking about going to do. I'm going to create a new kind of organization and it's going to have these qualities and it's going to move in this direction. And, uh, and then I held my breath mm. to see responded. Yeah. You know, so let's talk about that moment for a second. Right. Because I, I, I would imagine, you know, you, you, you walk in. Right. And you're like, hey, guys, I'm excited. You tell them and you're like waiting for the how about you thing. Was it did you were you nervous to share or were you more concerned about their reaction to it? I think both. OK, I think I was still. 
on that management team, I was still the new kid on the block. Mm. And so I'm not sure I was fully accepted into the tribe of leadership at that point. I was still pretty new. I'd only been a VP for a couple of years. Most of my peers had been there for a decade at least. And here's the kid coming in literally to play a video. <laughs> and I said, can I have 30 minutes of the executive team so we can watch this video together? I'm sure a few of them were thinking, oh, what then? Are we going to sing Kumbaya afterwards <laughs> right. or something like that? And, uh, and so I, I, I think if I could have held my breath for the entire video, I would have, because it was so important to me what I wanted to go do. And I was waiting for enough of a positive reaction that I could run forward with it. And quite frankly, what happened next was critical. My harshest critic on that executive team, the guy who was depending on me building great products to bring to market, the head of sales, looks at me and he says, Rich, I love it. How soon can we tear down the walls, which was going to be part of it, was a physical change to the work environment. And right then I thought, Boom, I've got him. Wow. Amazing. And the rest is history. Quite frankly, it was that literally that meeting that changed the direction and course of my life and has me talking with you today. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, let's think about this moment, right? You obviously were aware of the people who you were getting ready to talk to. You were also very aware of those in that room who were very influential right to how the ship would all ultimately run whether you would get the tomatoes thrown at you and run out of the room or somebody would say hey let's move right so to get the head of sales at that time share with the audience like did you when you heard that was it you felt confirmed did you feel a weight off your shoulders what was the feeling like to know that i literally just stood flat-footed with you know, guys who are, are running in a, a, a company and I'm basically telling them, not only am I leaving, but I'm getting ready to go do something different that might impact your current culture. What, what was that kind of feeling like? Yeah, so just to be clear, I want to make sure I, I set the stage here. This was 1999, two years before I would start Menlo. Wow. And so what I was suggesting to them that I was going to transform that company. Wow. And now, uh, and they were behind it 100%. In fact, the, the, the biggest struggle I had was selling my team on the change, the people who worked for me. They were very, they were very uh, used to the chaos. They were very used to their, their comfy little offices and cubes and their individual work assignments, and they had their area of responsibility and don't make me you know, think harder than that. And now uh, I had I was proposing big change. And a fun conversation that occurred six months after this, I think is very telling to this moment in time. David, one of my senior programmers, somebody who worked for me, who had been with the company for 30 years at that point. I had only been with the company for 16. So in some ways I was still viewed as a new kid on the block having only been there 16 years. Um, and David pulled me aside one day, closed the office door that I was in, and he said, Rich, I don't get it. He hmm. says, six months ago when you started this change, you had no idea it was going to turn out this well. 
I can't believe you were willing to take the risk you did. You put everything on the line. And I and he says, how did you do it? He says, I'm trying to figure out why somebody with the title, the authority, the stock options, the paycheck, you know, you have everything. Right. Yet you put everything on the line for this change. And you didn't know it was going to work out at the time. And that was true. I didn't. And I looked at him and I said, David, understand in that moment, I had to make a decision. I wasn't actually running towards risk. I was running away from risk because you see, you're looking at the worldly stuff. I was looking at this. I couldn't keep doing this for another 25 years. I knew it wasn't in me to continue this kind of work life for 20 or 30 years hence. And so I realized that the risk of staying the same was far greater than the risk of change. Wow. Interesting. And once I made that decision in my head, once I crossed that bridge, I was now running towards safety, not towards risk. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, so just so you know, Richard, that probably will literally be the first uh, Instagram social media post that we put out there. I'm just telling you, I think that's an incredible way of viewing things. But, you know, uh, let's let's dive into some of these questions. But I, I think we're headed down a path that I really, really like, because a lot of times, you know, our audience hears from people like yourself all the time and, you know, different people that, you know, um, uh, influence executive spaces or are executives themselves. And I think a lot of times what gets missed is that um, most companies, if you if if they're focused on their, you know, you know, general ledger, if they're always looking at the bottom line, if they're always, you know, all about money, it would seem on the outside that. That's all it's about is, hey, let's get to a point where we're making we're making a lot of money and that's all that matters. Culture doesn't matter that, hey, this is what it is. You just got to jump in here and kind of get swimming. And, and it's almost like, you know, you know, sending, you know, kids to swim upstream in a hundred mile an hour stream. Well, it takes muscle to have to learn to build with that. Or on the other end, you have to be willing to sacrifice a few things in order to stay alive in that culture. And you obviously after 16 years, you knew you didn't want to, and you knew you, you had an outlook. And I just think that's incredible. So, so kind of, let's talk about this, this dynamic. I want, I want to talk about the the type of person that you were working with. Obviously at that time, you all were, were somewhat young. There were, there were the older, you know, uh, silent generation, right? But let's, let's, let's dive into the culture. What was it like growing up in a company like that? walk everybody through kind of a little bit about the, the culture, what, what what kind of things you would kind of notice. And then on the other end, I want to talk about how that went into building everything that you knew eventually you wanted Menlo to represent. So so just share with everybody a little bit about that, those nuances of what was it like working back then in that sort of company into what you knew you wanted to ultimately build today. Yeah, so... Back then, um, we were um, a public corporation. Uh, the way you incented technology workers in particular, programmers and those who led them, uh, was with stock options. Uh, and you know, you issue cheap shares at a low price and you hope the stock grows to a certain value and then you cash in those shares. And there were all kinds of tales through the 80s and 90s of uh, 
the millionaires and multimillionaires that were being created, even if they were simply frontline workers programming at companies uh, back then like Microsoft or Oracle. And so everybody, I think, in our industry thought it was going after that piece of the pie that was the most important thing. And so we began, I think, as an industry uh, to lose our way, um, uh, to, to forget that we're there, we are a service industry, we're there to serve others, we are there to create things that help other people's lives become more productive. And that in doing so, the heart of the engineer is to see the work they're doing get out into the world and delight the people it's intended to serve. And we weren't doing that. Uh, our stock was going up and, uh, you know, but, but it always felt clever on the inside. It always felt like you were, you were tricking the world by uh, focusing on quarterly results and making sure you jam just enough sales through the pipeline so you could report good results this quarter. But in, in that jamming function where you're just selling everything you can to make this quarter's results, uh, look good. You're you're creating a myriad of errors that you've got to now fix the first week of the second quarter and the second week of the second quarter. And then by the end of the second quarter, you're doing it all over again. And it just felt like this rat race that you were never going to win. And you just knew someday the jig would be up and you just didn't, you didn't want to be there the day it happened. You, you'd be like, I hope I'm gone. I hope I find the next company before that happens. Right. And after a while, you, you, is your kids? I mean, it sounds. Do you have young kids? Yes. How, how old are they? Twelve and fourteen. Twelve and fourteen. So they're old enough now, where uh, like my kids were at those in those times, where you might sit around the dinner table and they'll start asking you about work. What do you do? Who do you do it for? What what do you like working? You know, how come you always complain at dinner about what's going on at work, right? <laughs> and. Um, and so uh, for me, I, I realized that this is going to be a perpetuating system even in my family because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave a legacy for my kids that says, oh, yeah, dad, dad had a good job. He made good money. We took nice vacations. But, boy, he was never proud about his work. And I didn't want that. And you know, so That's an interesting the- perspective that you bring up um, because I don't think I would have ever considered um, – the lens I am creating for future generations around what work looks like. That's a, that's an interesting perspective. Um, we all know that as adults and as parents, we have that influence, but we're shaping the idea that kids have of work by how we come home and talk about it every day. So, or not talk, <laughs> or about, not it. talk about it every yep. day. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, all of those things were roiling around in my head at that point, uh, because again, I was successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you just simply measured my life uh, on the standard, you know, almost like a public stock report of Rich Sheridan, you know, right. <laughs> what's his income this year? What's his assets uh, under management this year? All that sort of thing. I had the worldly success. I just did. I had a great title. You know, I was a VP of R&D, you know. Uh, But uh, I wanted, it's it's weird to say it this way, but I wanted more. It wasn't wasn't more of the worldly stuff. 
Right, right. You know, Deming said it best, is, is all anyone asks for is a chance to work with pride. And wow. That's wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's that's good. So 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 let's talk about now you let's fast forward. You get to a point where you start Menlo. Menlo is 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 started. You you got the sign open for business outside, right? You're 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 beginning to move. Talk about the first thing that you did, the first project or what was that first client or whatever that first was for you guys? What was it? And 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 how did you come to find that this could literally be uh, something you could build an, an enterprise around? Um, yeah, now you're asking me to go back 17 years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and so just what was the precipitating event? Uh, it was the dot-com bubble bursting. Okay. Uh, and so in 2001, uh, maybe some of your listeners will remember that year. Uh, some of them might be too young. Uh, <laughs> but uh, back then, there was a crisis in the software industry when the Internet bubble burst. Yeah. And we were swept up in it at Interface Systems. We had been purchased just six months before by a California company in Redwood City, California. Wow. Right, right where Facebook is located now. And... Um, uh, and when the bubble burst, they shuttered every remote office they had, including mine. Wow. And for the first time since that kid got a job in 1973 to 2001, I was out of work. Wow. And I went home and, was, and my oldest was one year away from going to college. Uh, her younger sister, two years behind her. Her younger sister than that, three years behind her. So I was about to enter the most expensive part of my life. <laughs> uh, and suddenly I'm unemployed and, uh, and I decide against uh, finding another job because, quite frankly, there weren't a lot at that moment, especially for older former VPs of public companies. And yet what we had discovered in those two years of interface systems we had built a system that could be replicated. And so we formed Menlo around that idea of what we had discovered in those two years of interface systems. So we had the advantage on day one when we hung up the shingle. We knew the system we were going to employ worked because we had gotten two years to test the system. Mm -hmm. So we knew in those two years, what we had learned was it is possible to completely reinvent how software is designed and developed. We knew we could uh, hire people. We knew we could onboard them. We knew we could create great work. Uh, so, so we'd already sort of proven the system we were about to go use. So that was very comforting. Um, now the question was, in 2001, when the internet bubble's bursting and it's basically a depression in the software industry, where, do you, where on earth do you find customers, right? Yeah. You know, Everybody's reeling. Now, the good news is when you start in a downturn, uh, desks cost $5, chairs cost $1, computers cost $50, uh, you know, so <laughs> really inexpensive then. Right. But uh, uh, in those days, what was the, the disadvantage became an advantage. Wow. Uh, people who came to work for me at Interface were now released out into the world. They were finding other jobs at local uh, institutions around Ann Arbor, and they remembered fondly what had happened at Interface. And when they found out we were starting a company 
around what we did at Interface Systems, they started calling. Wow. And so immediately got work from Domino's Pizza, from ProQuest, and from the University of Michigan Health System. So we had this unnatural kind of start with three big customers, and it was clear that the work we were doing was working, and we were on our way. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm revising history just a little bit. It sounds so darn simple. It wasn't. There were near-death experiences in the early days as all startups go through. Yeah. Uh, well, I can remember the check for $20,000 that showed up the day before we were thinking, you know, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe we won't make it, you know? Right, right. So, uh, so there were a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of entrepreneurial moments, the standard ones any entrepreneur with a startup goes through. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of them feel now like as if they were death-defying moments. But um, but we knew the system was working. We knew we could recruit people into the system we had built. We knew we could deliver great results. And um, and then people started coming on tours. They, they wanted to come see what we had done. Even when we were this tiny little company, they wanted to come see it. Wow. So, so in walks a young kid who wants to be hired at Menlo. And all of a sudden, you recognize this young kid is from a different generation, has different set of priorities and a different set of needs. What was it like when you started hiring millennials? What, what did you have to become aware of? How did the company have to either bend or, or become more rigid? What, what was it like hiring your first set of millennials inside of Menlo? You know, here again, uh, I came to learn something very important about that generation, and it's probably because my kids were born of that generation. So I raised three of them. Uh, and the you know each one of us in our generation has that defining moment. Uh, I know for me it was the day Kennedy got assassinated. Uh, I was only six years old when it happened, but I'm getting goosebumps just telling you about it. Uh, for the millennial generation, the defining moment was 9/11. Yeah. It, you know, and it was that occurred six months into Menlo's uh, beginning. So uh, that was the first near-death experience for Menlo because. Uh, that froze the business market because everybody was so afraid they just stopped making decisions and that yeah. almost. But what I realized in that moment for the millennial generation, because you know a lot of people talk about the entitlement of the millennial generation, uh, although us boomers, if if there's anybody to blame, it's us boomers. <laughs> <laughs> they gave them trophies for just participation. Right, participation but, trophies. Um, <laughs> but. Um, but the fact matter is, I think that generation in that moment became very purpose driven. And and they saw, and as my kids did, right? What did my kids see? Wow, dad worked for this company for 16 years and then one day it was all gone, right? And so they saw a world that was unpredictable. And and they started saying, okay, in, a, in an unpredictable world, what am I gonna hang on to? What's the What's the railing I'm going to grab onto if the ship is sinking? And uh, and I think the railing they chose was purpose. Yeah. And what I found in speaking, I think, to all generations, but it worked equally well for the younger generation, was this idea of a purpose-driven organization. When we started speaking clearly about joy, when we started 
speaking clearly about how we define joy, what questions a joy-driven organization needs to be able to answer. Uh, we found people that would come to work for us, not necessarily for the highest pay. A lot of people think, oh, millennials just care about getting the best paycheck. We're not the best payer in town. We don't, we don't want to be the worst payer in town either, but there's certain things that make us more expensive mm -hmm. and do. And so therefore that will bear out in potentially lower pay. But if you, if you A, have a good purpose, B, know how to communicate it effectively and, uh, and connect the people on your team to that purpose, it works a lot better than if you're just throwing stock options at them and, and trying to uh, buy them off with high paychecks. You know, you bring up a really good point. And uh, to your, I, would, I had no idea this was going to uh, come back around. So funny story. I'm sure you just saw recently Domino's Pizza New Purpose. I don't know if you saw this, but I thought this was incredible. So you just mentioned Domino's and I'm going, oh my God, I just saw this. So for those who don't know, you can go read about it. I'll probably put a link in the description of the YouTube version of this interview, but um, they've gotten around a purpose that I think is ingenious. So everybody knows they've got the black eye for delivering pizzas that are all messed up and jumbled or whatever. Most of them have had that issue, but Domino's kind of took it on the front of the face. They've dealt with it. They were not only did they embrace it a couple of years ago, but they've talked about all the changes that they were going to make. And now they've said, hey, we want to pave the way. I love this slogan. Like I'm big about advertising, how people connect purpose. And this is, I just thought it was ingenious. They're going to pave the way. So wherever you live, if you live down a street that's got a lot of potholes or whatever, they're going to help to make those roads get re, uh, repaved and repaired so that you, they can pave the way which is part of the slogan and the tagline in order to make sure that your pizza gets there, you know, the way it was made in store. I think that's ingenious. And that speaks to your point of come up with a mission. There's, there's not one kid, <laughs> right. Or just a person. It doesn't, it, the generation at that point almost doesn't even matter, but yeah. the fact that they created and tied an actual purpose to delivering pizza, something that people would think two things that don't go together actually make a lot of sense. I think they're going to probably see an increase in, in, in culture of our morale of people kind of saying, Hey, you know what? I'm going to go buy Domino's over another guy because you know what? They've actually, they're actually doing something about my streets or, you know, yeah. can you talk about that? And did, did you know that, that, that new, you know, ad and, and campaign was kind of running right now? You know, I hit, I, I've seen the reports because Domino's is headquartered right here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, they, their world headquarters is just about 10 miles from our office. And uh, and Michigan roads are terrible because of all the winters here. So, um, and so it doesn't surprise me that they would, I, I mean, I love it. You know, it's it's so clever. I, it's like, I want to order Domino's pizza because I want right. to do <laughs> my road and say, we got to fix this road that Rich Sheridan lives on. Exactly, you know? right? Like I, like, I literally was thinking about that when I saw the ad, I'm going, they're literally going to force people to make a decision. And yep. now they're giving people ammo to choose dominoes. I think that's it's ingenious. Right. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Yeah. So I, I have heard about that. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's pretty cool. So so let's talk about um, struggles. Um, obviously, every generation, uh, every, every generation from a work perspective brings uh, a different flavor and kind of their own way of doing things. Wow. Well, if you're like me, um, 
I really enjoyed talking to Richard. And I know this is only part one, and I know you cannot wait for the next one. But as you know, with the show in two days, you will be able to hear my part two of this interview. I want to first say thank you. However you got to the show, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, make sure that you subscribe. Make sure that you follow us. Make sure that whatever platform you found this show on, that you let other people know and that you share it. More importantly, what I would like for you to do is this. On social media, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter using the handle at High Level Wisdom. And you want to make sure that you shout us out. We would love to hear your thoughts and your comments from this part one of this interview. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. I hope that whatever you do today, make sure that you do it at a high level. Take care. Have a great day. And I'll catch you in the next episode. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.